Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. Engaging, irreverent, and subversive, Nicole Turan is a fearless singer-songwriter, poet, and performer. She weaves delicate, intoxicating harmonies of piano and voice that haunt and linger over wit sharp enough to cut you. <laughs> I mean, I've got goosebumps. That's magnificent. So it's one of the hardest things that you have to do in this business is tell people about yourself in a way where you're confident about who you are, you're aware of what you are, what you're good at, the effect you have, mm. but you're also not full of yourself or full of hubris. You know, they've heard enough hype, mm. and hype has a jive about it. And when you're trying to do this, you're looking for that grain of truth. Yeah. And so those are the things that we live up to. But it's not an easy thing. You've written a bio about mm. yourself, surely. Whenever they ask you to do it, how do you feel? That's no, the hardest thing. Oh, you're interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are one of the realest people I know. You wouldn't big yourself up for something that wasn't accurate. But I'm going to start right at the beginning. We're going to set the stage here. Five things that our listeners most likely won't know about you, particularly as a career musician, but it can be anything five things okay the first thing that surprises most people is that i have no theoretical training in music that even surprises me second thing that surprises most people about me when they find it out is that i'm a painter a performance artist actress model so i have a very good understanding of working with a lens working inside a frame i love the medium film how many are we at now that's two no, no theoretical training. <laughs> I'm a painter. <laughs> I'm a model actress, so I can work in that cinematic landscape. Mm -hmm. I think that's three. Uh -huh. Four, and this is the... <laughs> okay, so I am a member of the kink community, yeah. and I'm most commonly mistaken for being a dom, and I'm a sub. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a submissive, not a dom. I mean, this is that delightful. one's surprising. Yes. And then here's the last one. And this is a little secret that I've carried around with me until this afternoon. I have a dream to one day score a film. I want to create the music for a movie one day. That's magnificent. So there's five. You're five. I love them. <laughs> I love all of them. <laughs> so music. Hmm. Why music? What does it mean for you? It's been a very, very long journey with music because music is a very multifaceted thing. So my journey with music began as somebody who was taking music in, mm. a consumer of music. And when you're a consumer of music, you receive it. So there was at that time no filter for genre, good, bad. It was, did I like it? Didn't I like it? Did it make me move my body? And we, we see this with our children. The songs they love go do, 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 do. I'm not, uh, But they kind of got a something about them. And that was music in the beginning. 
for me as a three-year-old when I started playing. It was that feeling mm. that I was looking for. That was the relationship. That this activity, playing a percussive instrument, I've always played a piano and I've always played an upright box with proper strings mm. and that moves air in the space and has a physical and a uh, sine wave <laughs> physics mm. physics kind of effect on the space around it there's and music is part of the sacred geometry and I kind of plugged into that at three years old so that's always been the anchor mm. but then Something happens when you kind of go into sort of pre-puberty and you're starting to become self-aware and music was something that let me reflect on myself but also gave me words to speak for things that I thought and felt. It represented me in a way and that felt great. It felt great to have a sense of belonging that was so expanded beyond borders and age and... So then the sacred geometry part of the music extended into the lyrical content of the music and what that meant for my mental development, my social development. And then at about 14, I started to think kind of seriously about wanting to compose. Hmm. <sighs> but you're very sincere and very earnest at 14, and very serious. Yeah. Did I say serious? I was a very serious kid. <laughs> I hung out. I used to repair books, hang out in the library. Wow. I'm obsessed with books. Because books teach you empathy. They let you live through somebody else's experience. Mm. They tell you things that are true. They tell you things that are partially true. And sometimes they tell you things that are completely fabricated, but they show you a truth that no truth could show you. So I'm obsessed with books mm -hmm. and with stories. Going back to being a very serious composer at 14, just kind of, that's where it kind of felt like something that was a trade that I was kind of taking on an apprenticeship. Mm. I didn't think about it like that at 14, but I see it now, looking back with 30 years of objectivity over that young person who was taking on this kind of apprenticeship to songwriting creating perhaps in the space something that would resonate for somebody else in the way that music had resonated for me and given me something to belong to. So that's a good uh, diving in point for the next one. How old are you when you wrote your first song, 14? No, I think I'd kind of always been composing musically mm. because there's a difference between the kind of musical composition for me, the sonic part of it, that's like the body, and then the lyrical part of it is like the head. Mm. And so there are two parts of a being, but the song is where all the movement happens. It, and then the lyrics tell you the story about the movement, or sometimes they juxtapose with the movement for some. But for me, the songwriting process is always these two worlds because there's the poet, yeah. there's the writer, and there's the music maker. And they coexist so and they collaborate and sometimes they fight with each other. So we've had to find a mediator <laughs> who can speak both languages because 
before you start to understand these parts of yourself, and really it's the 12 years of working with Michael Canfield and having him produce me as an artist, mm. not producing a project like a record. Most often you get in a relationship with a producer and what they're doing is working on one thing. They're producing a music video or a body of, of musical song and they're putting it together into a thing. They're calling that an album and they produce that. Mm. And what Michael's musical mentorship, oh my God, all the alliterations. <laughs> Michael's musical mentorship <laughs> has been a, a profound, you know, I said I took this apprenticeship and, and it was the first time I'd found somebody who was a lifer in music, who was going to make music at every single place where people would say yes. And there was no gig beneath him, no matter how many incredible names or places he's played he has no arrogance about that and the service is to the song mm. and the service is to the people who who give you their attention you got to give them something back yeah. and i've been in this apprenticeship through our relationship specifically in the context of me as an artist for the last 12 years a gift. It's one of the big things I think that is missing inside of the industry is a kind of mentorship program mm. or a way for people wanting to come in to even speak to other, I call us lifers. Mm -hmm. This is what we're going to do for life. At whatever level of success we experience, at whatever level of support we experience, we are always going to do this. Wow. So that's why music, and that's why the music road life. Yeah. Because with what I get back, sometimes it's hot, it's empty, and i got to bring it all. Mm. And other times I'm so overwhelmed by the love, I may as well have been knocked over by a wave <laughs> what I had turned my back on. And uh, it's all of those extremes. Beautiful. Oh, I didn't answer the question about how old I was when I wrote my first song. No, you didn't. So the first time I had something that was song-shaped, <laughs> yeah. that means that it had a verse and a chorus and a verse and a sort of middle eight section and then the chorus again, like the way that the radio was presenting that songs needed to be. Mm -hmm. So the first time I decided to kind of submit myself to that, I was 14. Mm. Like I said, this was when I was kind of taking on this contract of going, okay, I can't just do these freeform bits of music that are not repeatable. This is wonderful improvisational jazz, but, <laughs> you know, it's a bit boring without a drummer and a, and a bass player. So um, the first time I kind of looked at that kind of pop or radioed kind of model of what a song looks like, I was mm. 14 and I wrote a song that was about unrequited love. Because what else? I mean, I'd be interested to do a little poll to see how many of our first songs were about unrequited love. But to add to that, the oldest of the songs that I still sing is one of the songs that I wrote when I was 18. Wow. So I still... 
and remember all those words and the verse and the choruses and stuff. And I, I guess other artists get to have careers like this in the public eye. Dolly Parton gets to have a song that she's been singing for 30 years. Mm. And that's okay. And so do I. I have a song I've been singing for getting close to 30 years. Just nobody knows it except me. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who come to your shows come now. Oh, uh, no. This is one of those that I really only sing in my own private space. This is not something that I perform. This oh. is one of the songs that kind of, I guess a good way to describe it would be like a plush toy that's come a long way with you in your life. And it's a little tattered. It's not the color it used to be. But it's still there. And a great comfort. And a great comfort. Yeah. And um, that song was about being in a relationship with somebody who loved me more than I loved him. And I was looking at the space of how irresponsible it is to waste someone's time hmm. and to understand that the most loving act is in fact to cause someone pain in the short term. And it was a very complex thing to wrestle with. I was 18 and realizing that I was the toxic thing in this mm. relationship. And so the song was asking for his forgiveness, in a way promising him that I would live up to this heightened way that he saw me. But I wasn't capable of it at 18, but I took that on board as a, you see that potential in me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to live up to that. So I can't perform the song <laughs> because this is what happens when I just talk about the song. But that's how I've always used the songwriting process is, is to be that therapeutic, self-reflective. And then also the place where I felt like it's a good place to make myself accountable. Yeah. Because I go back and back and back there again. And the first few times you write songs about breaking up with somebody and what, you know, what an ass hat they are. <laughs> and you realize that you have to sing that over and over and over again. You got to keep putting yourself in that emotional space. Yeah. That's not good for you. That's not good for your heart and it's not good for your mental health. Mm. So I've always tried to inspire myself to write music that would be good for my heart space and good for my mental health to go and live there every time I need to spend these four or five minutes performing or playing or delivering this piece of music in front of people is this good is this good for my heart and is this good for my head because if it's not good for me even in a way where it sometimes the songs can be about catharsis but they, that can also wear you thin as mm. the performer. So then I get really picky about when I let those out. If I see somebody really needs to let that steam off, mm. we'll, we will do it. I will need a sweet tea after the mm. set. <laughs> <laughs> and some smelling salts. <laughs> I'd prefer essential oils, but let's not get into that conversation. <laughs> It's a bit of a sticky issue. Who inspires you? It's such a weird feeling being inspired mm. for me because it's usually not nice. So I'm going to step away from music and use a slightly different example to show you what I mean. Mm. For those of you who haven't seen me, I'm uh, what we'd call relatively extensively tattooed. 
I have 22 tattoos. But for a long time, I only had about three tattoos. And every time I would see somebody with a beautiful tattoo sleeve or a visible chest tattoo or tattoo on their neck, I would have this kind of reaction of, ugh, meow. I would be irritated for some reason. Uh, you know, tattoos are so like, oh, 1990, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like make some sort of a very unlike me comment, mm. a closed minded, closed hearted judgmental comments I, I don't like those but they were coming out of me and I stopped myself one afternoon and was like what is this about this is a great person who told really really interesting stories and you laughed all afternoon and you're icking about something what are you icking about oh I'm jealous of his t- tattoos yeah. and so often when I'm inspired the feeling is a bit ick. Yeah. And because it's some limitation inside myself I need to release. And immediately after recognizing the ick is that, and then the inspiration came to allow the art to unfold in my body in this way. Mm. So being inspired, a lot of people think it's a pleasant feeling. It isn't for all of us. Yeah. So sometimes it's when I'm sitting at somebody's show and boy, I just want to pick fault with, oh, she's so nasal, or, <laughs> you know. And then I got to really check myself because that's where the inspiration is going to come from. That's where I'm going to release something inside of myself that's making me small. Wow. The yummy people, those people who kind of are like that plush toy and they're so comforting to fall into they don't drive me to change the same way. Yeah. They let me become complacent sometimes. Mm-hmm. They give me a soft place to give myself the off the hook. And uh, in this line of work, you've got to very much be on the hook. Yeah. Because the apprenticeship I committed to was the one of Joan Byers and Joni Mitchell. It was the apprenticeship to distill my life experiences in a way that they could improve or shorten a learning curve or comfort a broken heart. So I was going to be on the hook. And it wasn't going to be the hook that was going to work on a commercial radio station. It's a different hook. Yeah, very different my hooks don't ching, but there are hooks in the music and there are hooks that I'm on. Accountability again. <laughs> yeah. I wish I'd read the fine print. <laughs> and every time I think about that and I wonder, because I spend some time as a corporate person, I spend mm-hmm. some time working in the corporate, wouldn't always, I had my children very young. And I couldn't at the same time be a present guardian and build a music career. Mm. They demand too many of the same things at the same time. And so I did a decade of working, working, and then spent some time as a stay-home mom, which was a real gift. Yeah. And then began 
when my eldest was 10 and my youngest was six mm. to start writing towards recording music again because the internet had happened yes. and the landscape around music was changing. And in 2006, what was happening inside my head was, do you have to be a touring artist? The internet lets me put my music, it lets me make videos of myself and put that right into people's homes. And it's a game changer. I don't have to leave home to have a career. And so I started to conceptualize myself as a, as a studio artist, wow. as a recording artist, as somebody who doesn't go on the road. That's what's unique about them. You're never going to see a live performance. So the first album that I wrote, Perspicacity, was all really aimed at a kind of music that doesn't play in a live venue because yeah. it was designed really to live on the internet. But I was a little bit ahead of people wanting to stream content. I, then I always have been a little bit like that. What does Leonard Cohen say? The old convention of you know, the cart before the horse. <laughs> I was, I've been thinking about it a lot lately about how artists, musicians, creators go ahead into uncomfortable places. Somehow they are less afraid or they are so afraid that they feel compelled to explore that fear. And then having tread that ground, everyone else follows, which is how areas become gentrified. And it's usually the artists who move in first, by the way. Exactly. We can spot something beautiful underneath things and we can make things that are beautiful and it's um one of my artist friends in Tilbach has a poster a board that's been I think her nephew painted it but it says that so long as we can make things of beauty we will never be hungry mm. I know I'm misquoting it but that's the gist of the sentiment that kind of thing inspires me yeah this is my contribution I to make these born. things to make these things yeah I mean I have a firm belief that you are not born with this gift and this desire without it being very intentional. It wasn't a desire. It wasn't even a choice. Yeah. A compulsion and an obsession. Yeah. Something that possesses me. And maybe those sound like scary words, but remember, I'm a submissive. <laughs> 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 and so really I mean I'm not going to forget in somebody with my nature having really firm parameters a part of what make me feel secure mm -hmm. and my security comes out of knowing what the rules are what the game is yeah even if the game is rigged as is the nature of the kind of music that I'm presenting we're in a market the duo are He's 69, I'm 45. There are no tracks or loops or effects even. Things are played really kind of dry and how they are, you get what you get, the sound in the room. And we're making these artisanal interpretations of the songs right in front of you. The magic happens. It's so beautiful. <laughs> And it leads me very beautifully into the next section. Do you do music for a living? Music is how I bring currency. It's how I facilitate a life of travel. 
mm-hmm. and novelty and adventure. Mm-hmm. The life that I've created is really my livelihood. The fact that I'm plugged into an off-grid community. Mm-hmm. The fact that we've focused a lot on being very self-sustainable. Mm-hmm. So we provide a lot of our needs and that frees up the music. It doesn't have to be a job. One of the questions you asked me was, I'm sure we're getting there, is what do I think is, is something that inhibits people's ability to live as artists? Mm. And my answer is debt. Yeah. If you owe, it's going to be very difficult to have the freedom that is, and the flexibility that is required if you're going to try to hang your livelihood off of art. Yeah. It's difficult. So we are able to do what we do because of how our life looks. Mm. In 2007, the big thing that changed was becoming debt-free. Yeah. Which was why I could allow myself to go, okay, the pre-production part of it because I I kind of made two there were two records that I made the first one was called The Wicked Truth which I made with Kevin Leisha at his studios in Newtown Darkstar just after Josie Field had done Leyland there Mm -hmm. he kept trying to argue with me about songs on the radio and I kept trying to explain to him that's not what I'm doing here put more ice in this dustbin because the song comes from an ice planet (laughs) And I was making performance art in the studio. Two of the songs, I I clearly remember the look on his face when I came in with the rope and I said, you have to tie me up. The voice in this song is bound. And you're going to have to tie me up and you're going to have to wait until I start getting uncomfortable and jittery and complainy because otherwise I'm not going to be in the right emotional space for this delivery. And then I didn't have enough rope, so he ended up having to use the mic cables and I was tied up with the XLRs and jacked to text. We've got some photos of it. Oh, I'm glad. But I didn't get any photos of the day. We took a wheelie bin and I cleaned it out with Dettol. And I sent him to the service station at the, the Shell and told him to get about six packs of ice. <laughs> I mean, Wim Hof would be so proud of me. And I fell up. I got inside the wheelie bin and we kind of dumped a few bags of ice and then we poured a few buckets of water and some more ice and some more water and a wheelie bin in front of the mic. And I was doing a conceptual art project. Wow. I was totally off on a ninth dimensional tangent. And it was all sort of being coded into the work. And again, I was making art for other artists. Uh-huh. It was definitely not art for the marketplace. Yeah. So now debt stands in the way of musicians. Yeah. Being able to support themselves. Do you think that it's different in South Africa, being able to make a living as an artist? I'm going to say that I think that the only thing that's different wherever you go in the world are our accents. Human experience is human experience. Mm. We just sometimes use different words to express it. So I think that what one kind of humanity is experiencing is happening everywhere. I see it for the lifers I know that I've met through social media. 
the other piano players playing bars and stuff from small towns they also just load their gear in their car and go from gig to gig and the lifers mm. nobody's ever heard their names but we've created a community the internet gave us an opportunity to kind of become a community with each other you know we used to be able to make a recording of music and then sell that that used the artifact used to be something you could use as a commodity you mm. could use that as an income now you need to invest in in the product quote unquote and and then you need to spend money to a distribution service to make sure that that product is widely available on streaming platforms that are never going to return this investment to you but if you do not have your content in said place when you speak to somebody after a gig you become immediately irrelevant if they can't find you on YouTube, Spotify, Streamer, Deezer, Wheezy, <laughs> Conkle. I don't know. Bleep, even... bloop, bloop. I'm making up <laughs> names because that's how many there are. And we have to make sure that we have content in this place. It used to be something I could earn money off and now it's part of my marketing budget. Those are just the facts of the, the landscape shift. If one's idea of success was being on the radio, this would be a very hard life. But when your idea of success is being able to create and having a beautiful life whilst you do it, you are incredibly successful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If they gave away awards for this kind of stuff, we'd have a whole shelf <laughs> full of them. One of the things that's tricky, and I, th I encounter this in conversation when I speak to younger audience members, the distinction between music, the music business, the entertainment industry, <laughs> these are things that kind of have weirdly become synonymous with each other, mm. but they actually don't have anything to do with each other. Cardi B is part of the entertainment business, mm. just like Kim Kardashian. They're in the entertainment industry. And the products that they make and sell, the endorsements, it's not really got anything to do with music. Mm. Although music is ancillary to what they do, they're not in music different to that. Then the music business business is another whole nasty thing because it's about who owns the rights to things mm. and for how long. And I mean, we've just watched Taylor Swift wrestle. I mean, one of the most successful, highest selling female artists having to really have a fight, a ugly, drag down, knock out fight for the rights to the music she created. Yeah. I'm rolling my eyes so hard for you listeners out there that several of my internal organs are visible. That's exhausting. And that's the music business. Yeah. Okay. And then music is that other thing I was talking about earlier, that thing that makes you feel not alone that thing that comforts you, the thing that gives you the words for your feelings, the thing that encourages you to change your mind when you recognize something that you need to change your mind about. Mm. The music business, the entertainment industry. These are different things. And so if your idea of success is being on the radio, then you want to be in the entertainment industry. Mm. If your idea of success is making a lot of money, then you want to be in the music business. Yeah. 
and you want to get out all of the rights and all of that kind of it's a very legal very shark infested water yeah. that's the money yeah but if you want to touch people's lives and if you want to have a life of wonder adventure magic and magic then music is what you're yo drop the mic <laughs> i don't want to this is, looks like a very very nice microphone <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That is a gem. I love that. That is a very clear distinction and quite an accurate description. How can people find you, follow you, support you? I am in a very on again, off again relationship with Facebook. We're off again. Mm-hmm. We're on a break. <laughs> I'm on Instagram. Yeah. At Nicole.Tehran. The most honest version of me that exists in the digital world is my Twitter. That's where I say what I really think and what I'm really going through yeah. and what I'm really excited about. And I very, very seldom use Twitter to market. Because I guess that's my biggest issue with the social medias. There are like this kind of marketing front that I'm expected to uphold. And I'd really rather just stay in the relationships with people who I meet at the shows and usually end up emailing. So how do people sign up to your mailing list? What's the best I way? I don't have a mailing list. They're what? like, I'm writing letters to people one-on-one because they're just not enough people for me to be, put, to be publishing a kind of monthly email newsletter when I realized there were really only six people reading that. Yeah. So I just started writing them personally because it was much nicer to get one personal paragraph from me than to read 12 paragraphs of something I've generalized mm. for everyone's consumption. So I could really condense it down to what's important to this person. You know, hey, how's your great Dane after the poor surgery? Yeah. Kisses. Next email. <laughs> and so that's really how small my crowd is. My crowd is so small that I'm at this place where we're very, very, very intimate with each other. Yeah. If somebody wants to become my pen pal, they can email me at nicoleteronmusic at gmail.com. I'll write back, I promise. I love that. Oh, <laughs> thank you for coming into the studio. If you are an independent artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, Get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on shotguntory.com. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. You finger fuck me, boy, then you disappear. You only call coked out of your mind. I may be sympathetic, doesn't mean I'm blind. Say that you meant it, every word And when I say back it up, you say that's absurd Don't take this friendship out of context We don't have a friendship on me What we have is casual sex Like a wounded little boy 
If you want. 